Hello. Welcome to the Stockhouse. This is your show, F Freight Waves, for all things related to the CPG industry, the consumer packaged goods industry, and also the retail industry, since we've merged those shows. I'm Mike Bowden, still joined by Grace Sharkey. Grace, it was good to see you last week. Um, if you had to choose just one highlight of F3, what would it be? Uh, probably for sure, Brad Jacobs uh, chat. Mm -hmm. I mean, just especially for someone of, of his stature and leading a, a public company multiple, if you want to look at it in that way, mm -hmm. to just take questions without any uh, prep or uh, at least someone on his side kind of vetting them a little bit, you know, it was, uh, was really great to see. Mm -hmm. And he, I mean, he answered them all so openly and, and candidly. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, definitely. He was the biggest, um, heaviest hitter um, that we had at the conference for sure. So um, maybe the biggest uh, draw on on stage, aside from Ti. Um, I think for me, it was <laughs> that JB Hunt had that announcement that they're going to have their the premium intermodal service, have it in and out of Denver. And I thought it was so cool, just that you know they made the announcement at our conference. And I hope our conference has become a destination for companies making announcements. I think that would be really cool where just sort of going into the conference, there's kind of maybe buzz around gee, what's going to be announced, um, you know, at, at this FreightWaves conference. So hopefully we can, uh, can, can, can do that. Yeah, um, they also came saw in you too, on, like, uh, uh, I was going to say, they came in too, like, full swag. So they full, full on planned that. And it was, uh, I'm excited we get to talk about that a little bit on the radio tomorrow, too. Yeah, so much of the great content of Freight Waves is uh, these startup companies that are pitching their ideas to the venture capital communities in the crowd, and it's, it's also great to have the company on the, on, on the opposite side of the spectrum, sort of the, the biggest established companies with that BNSF, um, Railroad, and, and, and J.B. Hunt, um, so the, the biggest, uh, what they do, and in, in Intermodal, both of them are. Um, saw you on Freight Waves Now this morning. So for anyone who doesn't know what Freight Waves Now is, there's a two-hour video show every morning. It's kind of the, the good morning America of, of freight, if, if you will. Um, <laughs> if you don't have two hours in the morning to, to watch a television show, which you probably don't, you can still go back and skip around on, on YouTube, which is probably the, the more efficient way to, to, to view it. And you talked about um, you know, some of what, what Walmart is, is pushing with the, with the Walmart Plus subscription. And, and what stood out to me was just, you talked about the, the difference in subscriber counts. So Amazon Prime you have 170 million households, which is most every household in the U.S. I think about two yeah. or three people in a three people in a household. Costco, I looked up, 125 million members, and that's primarily you know, wow. U.S. and Canadian you know, company too. So that's that's pretty pretty close. That's higher more than I would have expected. Walmart yeah. Plus somewhere between 10 and 20 million. So Amazon Prime, you have nine times what Walmart Plus has. Costco, you have about six times what Walmart Plus has. If you had to guess in five years, do you think those the, those gaps are going to close? Uh, man, that 170, I think, is going to be a tough one. Plus, just think of everything Amazon's doing on top of that. I mean, uh, the one thing I, I think where Walmart will maybe win a little bit is uh, the the half off to those with government uh, food stamps and things of that, that, that nature. I think that's uh, a lot of their um, uh, consumers as well. Uh, and I think I, I looked up, it was like 41 million people as of last year that were on some type of, of governmental like food stamps or assistance. So I think that'll help them catch up a little bit. Uh, but I don't know. It'd be interesting because Walmart does ha have that worldwide presence. And we'll see exactly how they grow it. Uh, for anyone out there that has Paramount Plus, like 
it's totally, it seems reasonable to probably get just Walmart plus and have that in there too. So it depends on how they continue to bundle it. Uh, but the end of the day, like a part of Amazon Prime is that you also get right this awesome uh, movies and and TV shows that come along with it too. So it's I think the perks are a little bit more attractive on the Amazon side. Uh, but I just continue to see it grow. But that's a it's a huge long shot, right? 170 million to the and and that it's you said it 10 to 20. Like no one knows the exact number, and 10 to 20 million alone is enough of a gap for me to. To, to question that alone. So we'll see how they go, but I don't think it'll be anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll be anytime soon. And I do think there's only so many subscriptions people are going to want. Like, I don't think anyone's going to want yeah. Prime, Costco, and Walmart Plus. So it almost has to come at the expense of, of maybe some <laughs> of these. Um, does, does Target have a subscription service like this, or they just kind of don't, don't believe in it? Mm. No, I think the, the the way maybe you look at Target is just is, is shipped. You know, like I think that's the cool thing about shipped, right? Is it's not just Target. I mean, like you can do Myers, CVS. There's a lot of different ways and different stores that you can use that type of service for. Uh, so mm-hmm. a, unless that's what I mean, like the Walmart one for me is it seems there's not much attached to it right now as compared to the Amazon uh, one. So I, I could even see it competing over time with kind of the ship performance as well. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about all the other things that, that shipped can do. Um, you sort of just think of it, well, it was acquired by targets, targets, property, but, but that's a good point. Um, it, it, it does seem like really the main reason behind these subscriptions is just kind of the, the psychological impact that once you spend on these subscription services, it's just you feel bad if you subscribe to something and you don't use it. And so that's yeah. what gets people to subscribe to more like the Amazon Prime. You know, originally it was $79. It was never never about collecting $79 from anyone. It was just that yeah. they know the Amazon Prime people spend about four times as much on Amazon as the non-Prime people do. And I think that's the strategy um, with, with maybe Walmart Plus as well, in addition to what you talked about this morning, which is being able to more able to collect all this information about consumers yeah. leverage that into their advertising business. The advertising business is much higher margin than the other segments of the, of the business. Um, so that'll be a big part of everyone's strategy, I think, uh, going forward. Um, want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, t- Target. There's some interesting articles about Target here recently. There was, there was one in Wall Street Journal. There was one, in, a couple in, in Winsight Grocery Business, which I think has a good newsletter as well. If, um, I'm going to bring up the stock chart, which is, um, this might be the stock chart of the, of, of the sector, um, which is, which is Target's uh, performance. So the black line is Target. This is a one-year chart. So in the last year, Target shares down about 34%. Walmart is in blue. It's up 11%. So a huge difference between the two. And that started in June of this year. And then, um, you know, I probably should have put this on a, on, on a, on a longer range chart because um, it kind of both of them, you know, went down last year in the middle of the year because both of them have way too much inventory. And Walmart did a better job of catching up on inventory. Now, part of this gap is because, you know, Walmart's better with, Grocery, uh, it's about half their sales. Um, Target's more weighted towards discretionary, um, you know, items. Walmart's viewed more for quality. That helps when people are trying to fight 
all the inflation and, and every item of their of their of their personal um, line item, uh, but. But still, there was interesting that you know Bank of America analysts upgraded the shares of um, Target in October, and, and I love calls like that because you can sort of say, you know, at some point the bad news is in the stock. You know, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong, including all the nonsense about the LGBTQ items. I don't know who actually cares about that when they're going to buy you know toothpaste and and, and cereal. Uh, but uh, it, it can only get so much worse, and, and tar Target's margins already been cut in half, and they do have a little bit different clientele. So I, I love calls like that, which you know, you know, that guy must have gotten a lot of flack from people in shorting the <laughs> the, the, the shares. Um, you do have to have a, a thick skin. So it is going to be a busy week for earnings. We're going to have more on this, I think, on the the newsletter coming out this week. So this week we have Target, Walmart, Home Depot, all reporting. Um, Macy's reporting as well. You know, Target same store sales been down five percent year over year for a couple quarters in a row. Uh, analysts are saying expecting to be down also about five percent. Uh, you know, this quarter that's about to be reported. So we'll see if they can do any better than that. They've already cut expectations for the year uh, earlier. So we'll see if they um, can, can maybe actually you know beat some of those lowered expectations. Um, which you know may, maybe that's possible because consumers still keeps to seems to keep. Uh, spending Target says they're focused a little bit more on um, you know, lower-priced products, and um, Winsight Grocery business and apparently is talking about how they've they've actually done a lot better in grocery. I mean, they're not going to be Walmart in grocery anytime soon, but now they're the sixth largest in grocery, fourth largest in online grocery, and some of the smaller format, newer store sales, some of these more urban um, destinations. Forty to fifty percent of the mix is now grocery, so that looks an awful lot like Target's. Um, business. So what did you think of the bull call on, on, on target? You think it's all washed out or you think there's another shoe to drop? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I was just in there uh, right before we came to F3. And I, I will say, I think this time of the year, right, when we see uh, targets like where I go to mostly to get decorations, kind of get all these uh, Christmas gifts, et cetera, I, I, I'm interested to see how they end the year, uh, I, hopefully to see them a little bit up. I will say grocery-wise, uh, the fact that they're talking about, especially bringing down prices, I think is big. They, they don't really compete, at least in, in my region, uh, compared to others, including Walmart, Kroger, et cetera. So uh, it's always, uh, this is the last place I usually go to buy groceries, but I will say uh, their private label foods are pretty interesting, especially around the holidays as well. Like I said, they just had those out and I was like, okay, some of these are really uh I probably shouldn't have bought as many, but were really interesting, like recipes and and snacks and treats and stuff like that. So, uh, Target, I think, is like a lot of people go their gift cards. Uh, it's like an easy gift card gift to to get. That's part of the reason I was there was grabbing gift cards for family parties. So I, I'd like to see how they end up the year. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, made the right call, I guess he did on that one. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, that analyst had the dry powder to do it, staying, staying away from um, the target uh, initially and not recommending it. Um, I want to hit on an uh, article published over the weekend. Uh, it was Zach Strickland. Uh, he does a chart of the week article most Saturdays. This is relevant for retailers and CPG companies. Diminished inventories may boost holiday expediting. And so 
you know, Zach looks closely at um, really everything in Sonar, but specifically some of the truckload, you know, data. And one of the patterns uh, here as recently has been this spike in tender volume index outbound from Ontario, California. So that's the Inland Empire and Dallas. Uh, you've seen a spike. We can bring up that uh, Sonar chart here, uh, you know, recently. And, and basically the, the reason why that's important um, there in, in November is that in a lot, in a lot of most cases that freight's a long way from the consumption centers. Therefore, uh, it, it shows it has to be expedited. So it's, it's something that could potentially um, you know, cause uh, spikes in, in freight you know, costs as, as well. Um, so with that, I want to leave enough um, time for the next uh, guest. Grace, you want to uh, introduce him? Yeah, uh, so it's a good uh, friend of mine. He's been actually on the radio show with me before. Uh, we have with us today Kareem Kafuri, president of the Atlas Network. Uh, Kareem, thank you so much for joining us today. We're happy to have you on the stock out. Thank you guys so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and I would love if you could introduce your, yourself and your background and what really brought you to the Atlas Network today and a little bit about what the Atlas Network is doing. Sure. Uh, the Atlas Network is a global supply chain solutions company. Uh, we've been around for about 20 years. And our main focus is to help customers produce products safely. Uh, mass production delivered safely is really kind of our mantra here. Um, it is a process that is, um, you know, a bit of a step-by-step -step one that it took about two decades to sort of formulate the appropriate way to do this. And, um, you know, we're very proud and honored to do this for hundreds of clients delivering millions of products every single year. Um, and, uh, and we primarily exist uh, through a lot of industry and trade referral also a lot of word of mouth, and then a lot of industry relationships where design firms or engineering firms or industry partners will then kind of refer over. They'll do kind of the first part of the equation and then say, you know, you come to a company like the Atlas Network because they're going to, you know, produce these products for you properly through their network of almost 2,000 factories and kind of a very methodical process to what we do here. Yeah, I went through your um, website a little bit, and you, know, you make some really cool, cool things on the um, sort of production side. I mean, it's, you deal a lot with the you know, spirits industry. They have a lot of really unique sort of bottles, um, and you can see how it's just really eye-catching. Go to a you know liquor store, and there's just you know seems like countless number of, of product on the shelf, and it's just you sort you sort of buy one because the label looks cool, or bottle looks cool, or something like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the advantages and disadvantages of um, sort of having a custom solution for packaging like that versus one that's that's sort of off the shelf? Sure. So when we're talking about the spirits industry and a lot really with regards to kind of food and beverage, um, it's really an industry where people, you know, drink or eat with their eyes. Um, it's a scenario where you really are looking to kind of tell the story effectively. And one of the best ways to do that is with attractive packaging. Um, we've been in, in kind of servicing the spirits and beverage uh, industry for probably the last 10 to 15 years where there was a very big kind of boom in craft and spirits markets. Obviously, a lot of celebrities have entered this market and a lot of other brands, too, um, with the opportunity for large-scale acquisitions by large multinationals. Um, you know, in this way, by producing and doing kind of a mass customization approach, um, where you have custom molds for the glass and decoration and closures and shippers and things that are very kind of unique and, and align very well with the story, you have the ability to really be able to define the market 
and be able to present something that is truly unique. And when so many brands are, are on the shelf and trying to compete with each other, that's really a great opportunity to be able to do that with the way that you look and how that look appeals to the customer and aligns very well with the story you're trying to tell as a brand. Uh, so that's definitely an area of a lot of business for us in packaging these days. Can you... Can you talk about how, especially with, I assume that more custom packaging, there's the concern of right quality control, uh, shipping, making sure that uh, you're not losing anything on its trip over and and throughout uh, its its various channels as well. How do you work to make sure that you have you're helping your customers right find that 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 unique design? but also working with manufacturers to make sure that there's no lack of quality with how the product comes out. Correct. I mean, for us, you know, although we're talking specifically packaging here, we do have a commodities group, a textiles group, and an innovations group. So we do do a wide scale amount of production. And the reason why I bring that up is because regardless of the actual product, we have the same kind of formula that we repeat time and time again, which I think is quite important to our success here as a business. And that is to start with the right supplier, and that's by finding suppliers that are both um, a mixture of quantitative and qualitative factors that we look at from their accreditations, years of business, number of exports, uh, technology, their responsiveness, their timeliness, um, professionalism. We look at these different aspects on kind of the first step, which is picking the right supplier. Um, and then the next step is obviously having eyes and ears on the ground. This is very, very important because regardless of how many times you do a production, we consider it always to be the first time. There are different environmental conditions that can change, different people that are working a production line. Um, you never know what can, really, what can really change. So even though it's not the first time and maybe the hundredth time, you have to think about it that it's the first time and really make sure you turn over all the stones regarding both aesthetic and also mechanical um, aspects of the production. And then finally, the third part of what we do here is a third-party attestation. We always believe that it's important to have the additional set of eyes beyond the factory or manufacturer's quality control, beyond even our own um, processes, just a third set. So we'll work with the registered large-scale audit firms like Bureau Veritas or Vitrust or, or even outside uh, lab testing parties to basically be able to facilitate that additional level of controls. And this mechanism really allows you to get one of the best kind of outcomes that you could have. Um, it'll never be zero because mass production always has its sort of tolerances. It'll never be 100%, but at least in that way, by having a, a formulaic method to the process, you get a good outcome. Yeah, um, a lot to consider there for sure. Uh, I guess with, with the mass production, do you see much different results when you try to have it manufactured in China versus, let's say, Vietnam or elsewhere in the world? Is, is there one region of the, country, the world that tends to get you better you know, quality versus, versus cost? Or, or how do you think about that? I mean, I think the reality is, is that in Asia and more specifically China, um, the manufacturing capabilities are really second to none. They still are. Um, the technology advancements are, you know, at, at a significant scale. Uh, plus, you know, many uh, companies had relocated their operations or even some of their um, intellectual property and capital to Asia um, within the last, let's call it 15 to 20 years. 
Um, so in that way, there's there's quite a an advantage there with regards to the technology. They obviously have a very large uh, workforce there that's possible, and there's a certain there's a certain ethic work ethic that you get um, in China in the manufacturing space specifically that is very strong and an advantage. Um, you know, there are obviously other markets that are very good. You mentioned Vietnam. Vietnam has has always had a good uh, opportunity too, but the level of options and capabilities are significantly larger um, in China. And so, for us, when it comes to kind of global mass production, we, we will always, as a, as an organization, look at every opportunity. And and the conversation around nearshoring is always one that is uh, to be had. Um, and if the best opportunity with regards to the product, the technology, the quality, the efficiency, the timeliness, all of these different factors comes out to be something that's closer than further away, it's always a, a better opportunity. But to this point, to date, uh, we still continue to do a significant amount of production um, overseas and in China. Um, and that's that's pretty much how we're we continue to see it uh, in the market these days. Uh, I guess to even follow up on that as well, clearly right now there's a, a number of geopolitical issues happening across the globe. Can you tell us how you work with your customers in, in order to even have backup plans or, or choose producers that can uh, that they can rely on? knowing that we're in the environment that we see today? Yes. I mean, it's always very important to have a straightforward conversation with any client when you're dealing with overseas production. Um, ge geopolitical situations aside, um, it's, there's always risks that, that are going to be, you know, have to be factored in with regards to aspects of currency and transit, transport, force majeure, a million things that could basically happen that get even further um, exacerbated by, you know, uh, distance. Um, for us, the way that we manage that is we manage it according to building in enough time. Uh, you really have to build in enough time to ensure that the production is done within a certain time horizon. Um, the transit time is within a particular time horizon. And then you've just got this sort of like buffer zone. And the buffer zone is there to basically protect customers with regards to the delivery of their timeframes. Um, we also build in a lot of, uh, you know, buffer zones and different kinds of penalties and so forth with regards to our suppliers as well contractually to be able to maintain a certain level of performance and, and delivery. Um, so that, that's, that's another important aspect of this. Uh, generally speaking, and I mean, this is not a political show and I'm not a very political <laughs> person, but. Um, the reality of it is, is that we are in a, we have to be global citizens, right? We are, we are functioning within a global economy today. Um, we are heavily reliant on overseas uh, resources and capabilities. Um, and I don't really see that changing much uh, for a long time to come. Um, I do think that there are more collaborative initiatives that are happening. I do think that there are some strong nearshoring efforts. But what I'm actually seeing is more um, that, for example, China opening up factories in Mexico or even in the United States and so forth. So bringing mm -hmm. some of their manufacturing know-how and capabilities to actually be part of the nearshoring conversation 
um, where they're looking to kind of cut the gap or bring still their technical skills or their capabilities or or different aspects of what have made them successful and do it in a way that may eliminate or reduce some of those cross-border related issues. Um, so I don't see necessarily that, um, that, let's say, China or the geopolitical issues and so on are going to disrupt this. I just think that it's going to change the way that the equation is actually managed. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, perspective. Um, you know, on the topic of global trade, wanted to ask you: Are you seeing any um, sort of constraints on the ocean? You know, currently, I mean, one of the th interesting things we've seen in, in our data is that even though ocean spot rates coming lower, there's still been um, you know basically rolled shipments where the, the, some of the shipments have had to go on subsequent you know sailings. Have you have you seen any of that or any other constraints um, in, in the transportation networks on, uh, for for global trade? Um, I would say that from a cost standpoint, not so much, meaning that those times where we had really cost prohibitive containers, uh, you know, are a little bit in our rearview mirror, which I think is a good thing in many ways, because there are many businesses that went out of business because they couldn't maintain those additional shipping costs. There's only so many widgets that fit in a container. And if you increase the shipping cost by 50% or 100% or whatever else it is, the product becomes unsustainable. So I don't really think that we're seeing so much of that anymore. And that's leveled off. But I, I have seen sort of like increased transit times um, where uh, vessels are taking a lot longer. They're taking some roundabout way to kind of get there. Um, and, uh, and that's been a bit problematic with regards to some of the delivery cycles, especially coming into the holiday season and then usually during Chinese New Year and post. Um, so I, I, think that, I think that what's going to have to end up happening is this balancing act between both costs and efficiency. Because right now we're at a place where the costs are aligned, but the efficiency of the transit isn't totally there yet. And then it's still a little bit disrupted. And there are some, some entities and groups that may still be doing some gouging. Hey, let's put it on a cheap vessel, but it's going to take like 60 days instead of 30 days to get there and so on and so forth. So I, I think that there's, there's some balancing that still has to be achieved there. Um, but uh, but it's, it's generally better. Generally, it's better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, I agree. Uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, we do appreciate all of your, of course, knowledge. And for everyone out there, again, you can go uh, learn more about the Atlas Network on their website as well. We'll make sure to share that on our social. And uh, for our audience out there, that's uh, pretty much it. Watch out for our newsletter at the end of the week. And we'll be back next week with a whole new episode.